I'm here with Ross Wilson to bring you an update on what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. It was insanely long, seven hours, with many long conversations, but quite honestly, it left me wondering why we are okay with so much ambiguity. If we were going to title today's podcast, Ross, I would call it Unfinished Business. Well, good morning, Jill. Happy September and uh, happy fall. Um, I agree. This, the you know, we every time we we talk after these school committee meetings, um, we expect to have a lot of answers, and especially you know, schools starting in the Boston Public Schools on Monday remotely, um, and we had just uh, listened to seven hours of school committee, and again, we're left with um, unfinished business and more unanswered questions. Yeah, and it, it just ran through the entire meeting, seven hours of a meeting where. There were themes um, including that the negotiated MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding with the Boston Teachers Union, seems to have some serious holes. And there were many, many teachers who got up and spoke last night. Um, the East Boston COVID-19 testing rates are higher than the permissible open rate that was landed on by um, Health and Human Services for the, for the city of Boston. And so lots of people have questions about why we're even opening if certain parts of the city have very high rates, given that city that kids move all over the city to go to school. There was insistence that BPS leadership, the superintendent and her staff were misrepresenting facts. Um, and that's pretty scary. The buildings seem to still have many issues with um, the chief operating officer talking about thousands of windows that still need to be fixed so that they can open. Um, there's not a lot of trust in the maintenance capabilities uh, of the building with teachers talking about having to keep toilet paper in their rooms so that kids would have some when they went to the bathrooms. It, it did not feel, first of all, the public comment felt very well organized and that kind of says to me that people are really nervous and they're really nervous for important reasons. Um, so why don't we go through it and, and we can talk a little bit about what happened. Right, it's great. Um, and so Jill, I, I agree with you on all of that and, and also about the timing of decision-making um, and, and the delivery of essential information for beginning school. Um, we've, we have had uh, been in this pandemic um, since March and we continue to have conversations a few days before school starts about essential information about how to begin remote learning on Monday. Um, and, uh, you know, we have a delay in technology being available and being delivered. We have a mm -hmm. delay um, in checking with every family to make sure that their well being is okay and if they have the, the tools that they need for learning to start on Monday. We have a delay in a work group that's supposed to be meeting um, to figure out schedules and how schedules will work. Um, we heard from the superintendent that that group will make a recommendation on November 1st, and we'll get, we'll get into this, but November 1st is well past September 21st when school starts. Right. Um, we have uh, a delay in getting facilities ready. We've heard that you know, fans are still being delivered and PPE is still not in the buildings yet, and um, we're, you know, we're still having discussions about 7,000 windows that need to be repaired. Again, we're in September, and we're talking about windows being repaired, thousands of windows that are not prepared. Yeah. There's also serious concerns, Jill, raised about how to support families with these new tech tools that have been developed or being purchased. There's unfinished business, um, as you noted, with the Boston Teachers Union on agreements about how synchronous learning will be happening with students at home as well as in the classrooms. Um, there's so many unanswered questions, Jill, um, and we're running out of time. Uh, and we also heard, you know, speaking of running out of time, we, we heard a, a huge amount of self-congratulations from the, the Boston teachers, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Boston Public Schools team. Um, so maybe we can be spending less time on self-congratulations and more time on getting answers to the questions. Well, they're, they're very excited by the progress that they've made, which granted, it, they've made progress. The, the problem is the timing on the progress. We spent months and months in at several school committee meetings hearing that they didn't have answers yet. And now they're beginning to take action. And I saw the superintendent in the news doing a tour um, for you know, local news folks on what schools are going to look like in the fall. But it, the, we're in the fall and school, the start of school got pushed to accommodate for the delays that were caused here. And, and it just kind of continues to go on because it doesn't feel like everything is ready. 
but, but there was some good news. I, um, there, there's a new member of school committee and he's very impressive. And so he was introduced last night. He is the Boston Student Advisory Council representative. His name is Kamani James. Uh, I thought he made a great showing, talking about having someone logical and rational in the room. He asked such great questions and um, he, he was very impressive, I thought. I, I really enjoyed having him in the meeting. So Jill, we'll, we'll hear a lot from Kamani in, in this, uh, in our summary podcast and last night's school committee this, this, uh, this time around. And it, he, he is a great addition and, and it was really fun hearing his questions. And um, there's a lot of hope that is given when you hear somebody ask such great questions and, uh, and challenge um, some of the assertions that are made by the, by the BPS leadership. Um, so Jill, let's dig in. I mean, essentially this meeting was mostly about back to school. Um, mm -hmm. And we heard a number of different um, concerns raised by school committee members as well as community members about reopening of schools. Um, and so let's go through a few of these. Let's start off with technology. So mm -hmm. we heard from the BPS team that they have a number of new tools uh, being uh, purchased for deployment for students to start using on Monday. Um, and so Ms. Robinson, as she always does, asks great questions about the family experience. Um, so let's hear a quote from a question from Ms. Robinson here about um, about the use of technology and how to help families understand how to use these tools. In terms of the communication, um, I noticed that you all listed about nine different new technologies that you would be using for various kinds of sign-on to work with kids in programming. How are we simplifying all of this information for parents um, who are, you know, who are struggling sometimes just to get on, never mind, understanding all of this, um, you know, the various different platforms. Is there any kind of focused PD for parents, particularly parents who are going to have their children 100% remote during this period of time to help ease them into the, you know, facilitating of all of this different stuff? So, Jill, I'm, I'm nervous about this myself. I have three kids who are starting remote learning on Monday and, and hearing about nine new tools and sign-ons um, makes me quite nervous and, and makes me want to jump in And you're not out. so bad with technology. I'm not so great, but I'm not so bad either. Um, now, now, now um, I do have, uh, we have not yet received our, our, our links to uh, the tools and, and to the different classrooms and the new Seesaw. I believe there's a new mm. Seesaw app, which is going to be managing to sort of take place of the... Um, of the Google Classroom. So anyway, this is, these are, you know, I have not yet seen um, trainings around these tools. And so we'll have to see how the district responds to Ms. Robinson's questions about how to help parents log on and help students log on to these tools. That was exactly the second question, right? Which was around parent communication. Like the notion that parents don't yet know how they're going to help their students access virtual school. And it's, the Thursday before the Monday when school starts is disconcerting. And, and we heard that expressed. Um, and so Chairman Lecanto asked the superintendent for directions on how to help families tour their school buildings, meet their teachers, understand how to access technology, just really kind of get ready for school. Here's what the superintendent, here, here's the conversation between the, the chairman of Conto and the superintendent. Uh, superintendent, can you tell uh, members of the public how, um, if they haven't heard directly from their schools already, how else they might learn about opportunities to uh, view the buildings in advance of uh, the return to in-person learning? Yeah, you know, now our principals are back and our teachers will soon be back. And so the best way to always reach uh, your teachers and your student and your principals is just to give them a call and uh, go to their website, find out more information. Um, I would have to defer to Mr. Harris to see if there has been uh, additional communications sent out from the superintendents or from uh, his office at all. Jill, my, my question here is how is the onus on 54,000 families to reach out to that. Do they have to, each family has to call their school a lot and, of phone calls. And, and, and then check their school's webs, their, the school's websites for information about how to see their building and to meet their teacher. Um, yeah. I got to say that that's just, that's ridiculous. Um, every, every parent, you know, no. So, so we, we did hear from vice chair Oliver Davila who said that she, she got to do a parent, um, a virtual parent meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, with, with her teacher. And she was expecting to hear that everybody would have that same 
Um, same option. I, I got to say, Joel, I've had that option. My, my kids have all met their teachers um, and we've had the ability to, to check out uh, the school. Um, the, the question was is why- Was that by the teacher or by you? Of course, of course. It was by the teacher. The teacher mm -hmm. said, we would like to have a virtual home visit. Please sign up for one of these 100 slots. Um, so I'm wondering why the superintendent would say that it's okay to, to you know, Leave basically say every parent should go figure it out. Go figure yeah. out how you meet your teacher. Go figure out how you tour your building. Not right, okay. exactly. Yeah. Well, so there was a lot of teacher and parent pushback during public comment. And it, you can see trouble brewing on the horizon here um, because it does not appear that there's a solid uh, memorandum of understanding or an agreement with the Boston Teachers Union on schedules. And so Jessica Tang was one of the first um, speakers last night. She is, of course, the head of the Boston Teachers Union, and here's what she had to say. Normally, we should be celebrating the start of this school year and the MOU, that after many long nights, weekends, we were able to come together to finalize last week. This is an opportunity to collaborate and problem solve together, to find solutions that meet the needs of our students, particularly our high, highest needs students, and values the professional expertise of educators, as well as the health and safety of all of our community members. Instead, since the agreement was reached last Wednesday, school leaders were given directives directly in opposition and contradictory to both the spirit and intent of the agreement. The district has told leaders not to use creative solutions to meet myriad needs, not to create schedules and groupings in the best interest of students and educators, whether for instructional and pedagogical reasons or for health and safety reasons. It was clear from our understanding of that schools would have the flexibility to explore better schedules and plans with guidance from the reopening task force. We must retain experienced veteran high-risk teachers who are able to keep teaching those who have chosen to remote, remote learning, or we will lose valuable educators, many of them educators of color, to leaves of absences, early retirements, or leaving the district entirely. This will harm students. And we would not be in this position if the district had truly listened to us beginning in March when we offered solutions, the ones that now the district is trying to say are too late to implement. It is not if we start now. This MOU is supposed to be a start of us working collaboratively and getting support that is truly helpful. We're asking the school committee to hold this district accountable and ensure that the MOU will be honored and implemented with integrity. If you can do that, I hope you do vote for it. If not, I hope you don't, because it will just be empty words on paper that further inflame the distrust that already exists. We need the school committee and district to make decisions not out of fear, based on what is right, equitable, and needed. Take precautions, yes, but we cannot afford directives that instill fear and stifle creativity and collaboration when we desperately need it at this time to get our students what they deserve throughout the year in the best way possible. Give guidance on how to just make decisions equitably. It can be done. Equity does not mean everyone gets the same thing. It means getting people what they need. I have lots of examples of this, and I know I'm running out of time, but it does mean, it does not mean catering to the predominantly white families who want in-person schooling at the expense of the majority of families of color who disproportionately make up the system, who have asked for high-quality remote education. It does not mean simultaneous hybrid instruction. That is not a best practice instructionally for the students who are in-person or who are remote does mean giving opportunities for special education students most in need of services and inclusion done right as soon as possible. There's a lot more to say about what we can and should be doing, but bottom line, on for our educators, students, families, and schools, please support us. We need the resources. We need the thoughtful public plans that are implemented honestly and communicated clearly. We've sounded the alarms all summer. If you didn't hear us then, please hear us now. So Jill, you could hear um, a lot of frustration on the part of Jessica Tang. Um, yeah. she, we, we just completed an MOU um, and celebrated that MOU, uh, I believe it was, it was last week, um, where, where the BTU and BPS said, great, we have a way to start school. Um, but, but, but she here, was saying, we've tried to get meetings with you, and you finally met with us on Wednesday. And, right, and so, this, right? Yes. Like, so, so the union here is basically saying, we've been trying to meet with you since the, the, this pandemic started to right. talk about how this new, the new school year was going to start. And you delayed it for months and just decided to meet with us and rushed an MOU. Um, we, we met on Wednesday. They, they essentially punted a lot of the decision-making in this MOU that this sounds like, especially with schedules. So it sounds like it, instead of having an MOU that clearly spelled out how school was going to happen starting on Monday, they decided to put it to a subcommittee that's gonna meet and have a recommendation on November 1st. This causes, all this does is cause confusion. So now you have a hundred- Well, also, 
She also says that um, the, the superintendent, that she agreed to the MOU because the superintendent said that she's going to leave a lot up to the schools and let the schools determine things like the schedule and, and, and how the school is going to be run. And, and so she basically says to school committee, if you are not going to support the notion that a lot of decision making is going to happen in the field this year, you shouldn't sign this MOU because the MOU does not explain how schools are going to be run this year. It, it, is, it is highly concerning that yeah. one of the core components about how school is run the schedule, who the teacher is, what the schedule of the day, who's teaching what, who's teaching what, when, to whom, um, has not been figured out. Right. And uh, you heard the frustration on the part of, of Jessica Tang, um, and, and it, makes you all, it makes you wonder um, yeah. what's going to be happening on Monday. Yeah, I mean, just the tenor of her comments, you could just feel the pain that she's going through right now trying to grapple with this. Right. Um, and then, and then, Jill, you know, we also heard from a number of BPS teachers who were mm -hmm. also concerned about the conditions of buildings in order to return to in-person learning. And particularly, we heard from teachers in East Boston, which has been um, it has been impacted by by COVID. Um, probably, it is the neighborhood that's been most impacted by the number of cases in the city uh, of Boston. Did, but it's right next door to Chelsea, which has had the biggest number of cases since the beginning of this in the state of Massachusetts. And so, it. You know, it's, it's, it, there's some great questions asked by this teacher who's saying basically there's just a line that's separating us from a town that is not going back to school right now because rates are so high. We are suffering from the same thing in a significant part of our city. What in the world? Like, what are we doing? How, how are we right. not thinking about that differently? And so, so should we play that clip? In a Boston Globe article, East Boston State Rep Madaro wrote, our coronavirus infection rates are higher because our communities are systemically more vulnerable to the spread of this disease. Nearby Chelsea and Everett schools are staying virtual because positive testing rates are in the moderate risk zone at 5%. BPS stated that we will not resume in-person learning until citywide COVID rates are in the low risk zone below 4%. Yet BPS is asking teachers and students to return to school in East Boston, where rates are at 6.4%. Earlier tonight, the superintendent stated that rates are not quite where we would like them to be, and yet I'm expected to return to my building on Friday. So, Jill, many many teachers have have, have concerns about going back into their buildings. Um, we've heard about windowless classrooms. We've heard about um, bathrooms that have ventilation that's broken. We've heard a lot about lack of protocols for safety for for PPE being in buildings. Um, teachers, I believe, or, or union reps are supposed to be walking the buildings tomorrow, I believe, on Friday, mm -hmm. to examine the state of the buildings. And so we should expect to hear um, if there's any concerns raised up, and, and hopefully they'll be dealt with before the October 1st um, return of students back into right. schools. Um, but, but we, you know, we heard this over and over again about teachers concerned, um, and they have a right to be concerned, Jill, because as we've discussed in the past, there's been two decades of, um, lack of maintenance of buildings and, um, to be able to fix all the buildings. We've said this from the beginning in a matter of weeks, uh, we knew was not going to happen. Um, Very hard. And, and, and we're hearing more and more about this from, from our, um, from our teachers. We also heard from a number of parents about the lack of trust in the school system and, and poor communication overall. Uh, let's play a couple of those quotes from families during public comment. The problem is, Mr. O'Neill, and the concern is, is you're losing a lot of your community for those students who do have a choice to go private or perhaps move or go somewhere else. And that's not good for any of our schools. I agree with the last speaker, there has to be equity, but part of the equity is having a community base of every race, every economic base, and that's what we've been doing or trying to do. And this lack of communication, it was a very difficult thing to try to convince people that they should trust BPS. And that is what we need. I have a dog in this fight. My kids are in the schools they're in and they do well. But a lot of parents who are dying to get into schools, the lottery process, the uncertainty, add to it this, no communication and a delay start of two weeks only to go remote. I just think it's very important that you look at it from a perspective of a parent that we want to keep in this community. As Mr. O'Neill suggested, we want to find, why are people leaving? Because they don't know who to trust. They don't get the information they need from BPS. 
and we lose them and you're going to keep losing them. So I'm here to give you the reality check because I advocate for BPS all the time and every year my job becomes more difficult. So please make my job easier. Make people trust BPS. You're losing your community. I mean, that's super scary to hear from parents that, you know, we're just, I mean, it's just basically expressing exactly what you've been saying, which is we, we don't trust what's going on. And, and, and so how can we trust you in this situation? How can we trust the school system in this situation? Parents and teachers are very aligned in how they feel about, I think, this back to school plan. So I think I, my, my understanding, I mean, well, the way I see this is, is that many people are giving a lot of latitude to school systems and to government and everybody around mm -hmm. this pandemic and saying this is unprecedented. This is some of the hardest things we've ever dealt with um, as, a, as a society. And, and at the same time, we're looking for people to trust. We're looking for leadership through this right. pandemic. And the way we trust people is by getting straight answers and being told the truth. Um, and, and we're not getting that from BPS. It's just clear. We're, we're, getting, we're getting a whole bunch of stuff. We're getting a bunch of delayed decision-making. Um, the people who are supposed to be teaching our students are, are saying that things are not in place to teach our students appropriately. It's highly concerning for families. Um, and I expect, you know, we heard there was a decline in enrollment for Boston again this year. This has been multiple years of declined enrollment. Mm -hmm. um, I expect that, you know, a lot of that is due to parents just being fed up and those who have the means are saying, we'll go choose a different school. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good. You know, and then what else, what else is not good? And, and Kamadi James um, asks a question. There's several questions that are asked that are just logic based questions. And so he asks, this is just a, for example. So he asks a question about sending the, the district's decision to send high school students back to school at the peak of flu season. The high school students aren't coming back until November. And so here, here's uh, Kamani's question. I am um, a tad bit concerned and curious around sending students back in, um, other students back in October and November um, when, you know, flu, when flu cases start to rise um, throughout the country. And, you know, according to the CDC, um, since symptoms of COVID are almost synonymous to that of the flu. So how does the district plan to sort of counteract, um, you know, sending students back during that height of flu season? So it's a great question, right? But really, no one has an answer. Is Corey on here or Suzanne to speak to the health benefits? and the health precautions around the flu? <laughs> Hello. Has anyone, uh, has, <laughs> has, has anyone talked about this? Like, how about a response? You know, so the superintendent's basically saying, anybody? Yeah. Right. Tammy, anybody Do we know? have a response to it? Yeah. Right. Um, this is the kind of stuff, right? This lack of response, this lack of knowledge of the problem, this lack of sort of being prepared to answer a question. Um, this is what makes people worried. This is the distrust that stems from this is, you know, people saying, anybody, anybody, um, yeah. and crickets. And no one really having a clear answer. So this happens again around MBTA passes. This is just, so a, a number of high school students, I think from seventh grade and up, you receive an, a pass for the MBTA to get to school and back. Every high school or every student in Boston Public Schools gets one. And Kamani's question is just a simple one. If we're not gonna be back in school, how, how are we going to get the passes, right? And, and don't forget, COVID-19 is happening. So here's, here's his question. Since high school students wouldn't be going back to school until November, how exactly will students be receiving these MBTA passes? Sure. So we're working with the schools to get them delivered to schools, and you also have the option to kind of according, like you typically would. Um, so we're going to be delivering to them, and then you can kind of make arrangements to get to the schools, like most schools school students would um, every year, like like you normally would. Okay. Is there an option for students to possibly get them mailed to their houses if it's not possible for them to go to school? We can explore that option. We can think that through a little bit further if that's if that's uh, helpful. Um, we'd have to think that through a little bit more uh, and think through the logistics of it, but we can have an offline conversation about it. So Jill, I, I believe the answer is yes, Mr. DePina, it would be helpful to mail the passes home. Since students don't have T passes currently, um, we're trying to keep people safe. So we're going to, how are students going to get to every school to pick up their T passes? If they don't um, have a T pass. If yeah. they don't have a T pass. 
So, yes, it would be helpful to mail the T-passes home. And no, you don't need to bring this conversation offline. This is a public school committee meeting. Answer the question. Can we mail the T-passes home? You, you don't respond by saying, let's take that offline. You respond in a public meeting by saying, let's explore that. You, the answer has to be yes or no, right? Okay. But yes, we should be mailing the T passes home to all the students who qualify so they could begin to take the T and access their education on October 1st. So, so then there's some questions um, from school committee members about uh, how do we take care of our kids extracurricularly? So there's some questions about sports and food. Do you want to talk about those? Yes. Yeah, so, so Jill, let me get into sports for a second here where, where Mr. O'Neill asked a question uh, about how do we engage our students in, in sports. And what we heard from BPS is that um, they will support cross country and golf as two sports for this fall and all the other sports will be delayed. Um, and here's, here's um, and, and this very well may be the right guidance for, for um, to, to make sure that we are, we're very careful about stopping the spread of, of this pandemic of mm. coronavirus. However, I am very concerned about engagement. And let me just talk about this for one second. We're, we have high school students who have been out of school, out of in-person school since March. We've had a summer of disengaged youth. You have seen a rise in violence around our city um, and I'm not saying there's a, an absolute direct correlation between lack of uh, jobs and engagement in education this summer, but there has to be something there about, you know, we, we didn't have great, great jobs for our youth. We didn't have great summer experiences, in-person experiences for our youth. And our high school students will not begin in-person hybrid school until the middle of November, the middle of November. Right. They are last students who were going to engage in in-person school. And we're not giving them any opportunities, essentially, for athletics other than cross-country or golf. I think we really have to ask ourselves a question of how do we engage our high school youth in productive, um, healthy activities this fall? Um, and, and, and we heard what the restrictions will be, but we didn't hear anything about how we're going to support our high schoolers um, in their social, emotional, and physical well-being during this extended time out of school. Yeah, you know, as you're talking too, it's dawning on me that a lot of kids, thousands of kids never turned on their computer during virtual school the last time. So it's really kind of two things that we didn't hear about at all, which is one, how are you going to get everyone to attend virtual school? And then two, what are you going to do to support what you're saying, their social emotional health through this period of time where we can't have or won't have them in buildings? Right. So the whole theory, which I would, is to get the most high-risk students back to school first. So our students with disabilities, our English language learners, our high need, I'm sorry, it's high-need students, not high-risk yeah. students. So our, our most high-need students back to school first. Um, and that will start with our students with disabilities, our English language learners, our homeless students beginning October 1st. And then we, the district made a decision to phase in by age. And um, I understand this in a K-8 to or K-5 to school where you're starting to grow up your classrooms over time and making sure all of your protocols are in place and working really well. Mm -hmm. I don't understand this for high schools. High schools are just gonna be empty, mostly, except for our students with uh, the most high needs. So why not begin to phase in ninth graders along with our K-1 students earlier in this so yeah. we can engage our students in face-to-face -face learning? Yeah. Um, so it's an outstanding question, wasn't answered, wasn't addressed. Um, but, and Jill, you know, we, we also, just to move on to, food for, for a moment. Um, Mr. O'Neill asked a question about food and said, look, we heard um, that, that you're going to, what the superintendent noted was we're going to decrease the number of food sites. So we're going to move from uh, 34 food sites to 21 food sites, which is well, peculiar. Well, she's supersizing about, those other sites though. Right. We're, right. We're so she's, she's going to supersize McDonald's handbook and uh, supersizing. Right. So the, sites, so the big means. news, the big news was the superintendent's going to, we're going to, we're going to decrease the number of meal sites. So maybe make it harder for families to get to those sites. And then we're going to hand out more meals at those sites. So five days worth of breakfast and lunch, which I would imagine would be in a bigger box. So we have now fewer locations. You have to travel a further distance to get a bigger box of supersized food. Well, and how, so what can they do except for shelf stable? If they're going to hand out five days worth of food like this, this, I mean, and he asked this question, we should, pay, we should play the quote, let's play the quote. 
could you please send us what the menus are going to be and what the food is going to look like uh, for both remote and hybrid? And I do plan upon visiting, as I did this uh, last spring, I do plan upon visiting a number of those 21 sites as they pass out food. I'm going to be interested in see what the food is that we are offering to our students. So we are too, Mr. O'Neill. We're, yeah. we're, we're, waiting for, we're waiting for the day that BPS begins again to serve our students healthy, delicious meals. All we've heard so far from BPS is that they uh, take great pride in serving uh, 1.8 million graham crackers and cheese sticks. Um, well, Jill, that's not that hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you buy prepackaged graham crackers and cheese sticks and you hand them out to students. And that's not the difficult. Well, so what you're referring to is the fact that because we work so deeply in school food, you spend time picking up school food every day so that we can take a look at it. And there's been a lot of graham crackers and grape jelly for lunch in those packages. Yeah, so what we've seen is all prepackaged food bought from a prepackaged vendor and handed out to students. This is yeah. not that difficult to implement, um, but the, the superintendent probably took about five minutes of the meeting congratulating the team on an amazing job of handing out shelf-stable food. Um, so Mr. O'Neill asked for a menu. Um, we expect to see that menu at the next school committee meeting. Um, and we hope the, the, the district maybe moves on to talking about um, how to we support the physical health of our students by providing them with healthier food. So there's, there's really, there are so many unanswered questions in a, a very long period of public comment, but they, it was mostly an expression of worry. Um, and so the superintendent then, which is, this is not typically what happens. Typically, school committee and superintendent do not respond to public comment, they take it in. Um, but she decides to respond to public comment. I don't typically speak to um, all of the testimony, but there are a few things I think that need to be cleared up um, here. Um, first, I want to just make sure that people do understand with, the, with regard to the MOU, um, there is inside the MOU, the task forces meeting, and they need to meet prior to November 1st for creative solutions for scheduling. So Jill, what, what this demonstrates is that there's still a lot of interpretation in this MOU. Um, we heard Jessica Tang ask the school committee to respect the promise that schools would have flexibility to interpret schedules and, and figure that out and be creative in how do they do that. Um, and, and now we hear that the task force that needs to have specific answers by November 1st, November 1st. By the way, school starts on Monday. Yeah. And we have a task force that's gonna come back to us for November 1st. And, and I mean, teachers don't really have much power here at the moment, right? I mean, they can't strike. They, they kind of have to roll with this a little bit, even though there, there's some really deep concerns, especially about parts of the city where there's Pretty high rates of COVID. Right. So there's there's a lot of concerns uh, amongst teachers. The teachers are not able to strike. That's against state law. And um, and I guess you know what we'll what we'll hear is more advocacy as this goes from the teachers union saying you know we were um, we you know they're saying basically we were not told the truth at the bargaining table um, and there was somewhat of bad faith bargaining potentially. Um, but so, Jill, this was the most important part of the meeting. This was the crux of the meeting where the public comment demonstrated a lack of trust that teachers, parents, and community have, and really because the school system is not able to answer anything um, clearly. Um, and the superintendent is, um, was compelled to answer here, um, which is atypical, as you noted. Um, but, you know, there really is no answer. It's basically saying the superintendent is, you know, trying to respond to the, the angst that she heard. Um, and we're left with the angst sitting there and no clear answers. Right. So then the night moved on to the votes that school committee needed to make. And so first was a vote on the Student Information Sharing Act. But it was still, it's very gray, right? Right, so, so we heard from public comment that there was, there were still concerns about um, the clarity of the student information sharing, that, that in fact it could still put um, students at risk, it could put students with disabilities at unfair risk or undue risk, and it could, um, it doesn't deal with uh, racial profiling um, that in, in this agreement. And so the same thing that happened with the Boston Teachers Union MOU, uh, where things were not spelled out 
in the agreement, so it was left open for interpretation and confusion, are the same things that are happening with the student information sharing um, agreement here, where um, the district is basically saying, we'll deal with this later, just vote, we'll vote on it, um, and we'll deal with the interpretation in trainings and FAQs later on. Um, and so Kamani comes in here again um, and says, this is not okay. That in well, fact- it's it very rational, his point. Right, he, he's basically saying, look, this needs to be spelled out uh, in detail before we vote on it. And so let's play Kamani's quote. I definitely do agree that um, a lot of it doesn't go into training. I definitely do agree that our SSOs need to be trained on this policy, need to be trained on different circumstances and scenarios that could arise um, that they would need to act on this policy. I do think, though, that, well, personally, I do think that we cannot pull our, we can't put our full weight. I just, I feel uncomfortable putting the full weight and sort of like expectation behind training because I think it's helpful to have written in clear, concise language somewhere in the policy that, you know, like this, this is how to approach um, X, Y, and Z. And then, and then couple that with training as well. So you have something in on black and white on paper to refer to when you're trying to figure out how to navigate a scenario yeah. that constitute looking at the policy. Yeah. Mr. We, James we were, was, and Superintendent, was, if I might just interject, um, Mr. James, I appreciate, um, you know, obviously you spent uh, 11 meetings uh, poring over this policy. Uh, with your colleagues on the uh, working group, and I appreciate, um, you know, the continuing conversation here in your first meeting uh, this evening, but I do want to recognize that there are other members that uh, want to ask questions and, and have comments. So, so Michael Acanto cuts him off, and no one really ever responds to his concern, but his concern is, is a very simple one, and Michael Acanto is a lawyer, right? When you're, when you're writing an agreement, the the idea behind an agreement is that it answers all of the questions if something goes wrong. You have a resource. Nothing should be left up to opinion. There should be no ambiguity, which is which is Kamai's only point. And he completely gets shut down in, in his question. And, and basically, you know, Kamani, it's as if Michael Acanto thinks that Kamani has an issue with something that's in the policy, but what Kamani actually has is an issue with what isn't in the document. I, I, I just thought it was such an interesting point, right? Because if you do contracts, you know this, you know that the more clear the contract is, the better the contract. And so this kind of just leads me to believe that this is not a very good agreement. Um, anyway, there's lots of good questions around this that were left unanswered and there was a unanimous vote to pass it. So is, it's essentially is this Jill, the school committee wanting to check something off their list? because it, it's been kind of bouncing around for so many meetings. I just, it just, it's very disconcerting. It, it seems, it seems as if the, you know, at, at this point, the school committee uh, feels like they had a task force. They spent a lot of time on this issue. They wanted to get it resolved. Um, and rather than dealing with some of these, these harder issues, they decided to kick it, kick the can. Um, yeah, you, and, I mean, that's the thing though. I mean, this is the worry, right? Is if we continuously put policy in place where you kick the can and you let things blow up, I mean, that's, that, that's what causes things to blow up. And that's, I think that is what we were hearing. I think that's what the, caused the tenor of the meeting. So people are just like, everything well, is so uh, unclear. Jill, we'll hear a bit, little bit later on about, um, about the length of public comments, but um, the kicking the can will only lead to more public comments. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, the, there's lots of concern about the reopening rates, um, in neighborhood rates, and this comes up around the conversation about the MOU with the BTU, with the Boston Teachers Union. Um, and so there's no, there's no clear answers, but the board needs to vote, school committee needs to vote to push this MOU forward. And so the conversation opens with Chairman Lecanto asking the superintendent a set of questions. I want to direct a couple questions uh, to uh, the superintendent. Um, as I recall, we do have a, a, a memorandum of agreement that has been negotiated with the BTU, correct? Yes. And as, as far as I'm aware, uh, the BTU voted in favor and adopted this MOU at a, a meeting of the membership last Wednesday, correct? 
That is correct. And there are um, provisions in that contract that provide for um, a um, uh, consideration for uh, teachers that need accommodations or leave uh, related to COVID-19 uh, concerns, correct? Correct. Okay. And we also have um, uh, a number of fail-safes put in place for uh, both uh, citywide um, COVID rates as well as um, neighborhood-specific uh, COVID rates uh, to um, try to address uh, and tamp down the spread of uh, any sort of COVID infections across the, uh, uh, the schools that are included in that MOU, excuse me, MOA. That is correct, I believe. Yeah, Jeremiah, I'm pretty sure we have both of those for neighborhoods and for citywide. And for that last piece, I think there was a little bit of confusion I think there. It was double. Um, perhaps even in, in the membership, if, um, if I can uh, read into uh, some of the questions a little bit earlier. Um, so maybe either Ms. Poost or Mr. Hassan, Mr. Taylor, uh, Dr. Chiselius, perhaps someone could just briefly walk us through once again the, um, uh, the fail-safes that, were, that have been put in place around the, the citywide infection rate as well as the neighborhood infection rate and the steps that the district will take to address each one of those. Because I think that's very important in particular to the East Boston neighborhood, as we've heard uh, this evening. So, so because of all the, the, the confusion expressed uh, during public comment, uh, Chairman Lacanto here is trying to you know, concretely communicate anything that is clear and documented by asking very pointed questions to the superintendent. Um, and, and then we moved on here from, had Tammy Proust then adds flavor to his questions about neighborhood um, rates versus citywide COVID rates. And, and Tammy Proust, Tammy Proust is the, she's kind of acting in an operational function for the superintendent right now. Right, right. Let's play the quote from Tammy. What the MOU states is that obviously the district will pivot to fully remote if the citywide positivity testing rate is 4% or over. With regard to neighborhood rates, though, if in fact um, we have the uh, Chief Martinez come in and talk to us, and if, if a neighborhood is double that rate, so anything over 8%, um, we would do specific testing in that neighborhood in order to try to drive down those rates. However, while we were at the negotiating table, and certainly the um, East Boston rates were higher, we made sure that um, the Boston Public Health Commission was um, working hard to bring that rate down. And as you all talked about, it went from over 11 to just over 6 right now. And so the provision in the MOU says still that if there's any neighborhood over 8%, there will be specific testing in that neighborhood. But even while there is no neighborhood over 8 we are doing 5% of random um, sampled testing of all B2 members. Um, and we have in the MOU um, some prioritization of particular kinds of work roles um, that change depending on what the rates are. Okay, so here's what I understand. I understand that if the rate is 4% across the city, the schools go virtual. If something is 8%, and I'm not clear if it's a part of the city or all of the city, we are going to start testing to drive it down. And, and then maybe if it's, if it's 8% or more in a neighborhood, we're going to test and drive it down knowing that. So, so it sounds like then schools are going to remain open. Yeah, um, it did. But, it but we're like. going to drive it down in this neighborhood, knowing that a neighborhood could send kids to 50 to 80 different schools across BPS because of our assignment policies. Um, I have no idea, Jill. I don't, I don't, I don't understand. It, it's, the it's very confusing. And, and, and they, they, they've been quoting, there's been this quote that's been running through school committee meetings that says we're going to follow the science. And Ms. Poost suggests that there's a problem with the science because the science is given to us at the state level and we're trying to make decisions at the local level and teachers and families are pointing out that local is even more local than you're acknowledging because this city is broken up into many different parts of the city which themselves are as big as many other towns and cities across the state but you're not considering what's happening in each part of the city and so and once again, Kamani James, and, and then Ms. Robinson also chimes in here. 
ask very good questions about this. Isn't that concerning in itself? It like is sending kids back from that neighborhood to to schools, schools that may not even be in that same neighborhood. It is concerning, and that is why we watch it and we make sure that we're pouring resources into neighborhoods to keep the numbers down. But, of course, of our 54,000 kids, they don't all go to school in their own neighborhood, nor do the staff that go, that work in those schools necessarily live in those neighborhoods. And all of the public health guidance so far has not been by neighborhood. For example, when the governor's order came out or the mayor's orders come out about what businesses can open and cannot open, that's not by neighborhood, that's citywide. But isn't part of the problem for us is that the neighborhood, some of our neighborhoods are big as some small cities. And we do have all of the, you know, the, the crossing back and forth. And I know, I mean, that's the angst I heard also in teachers' voices that, um, you know, yes, we're looking at one Boston, but as we're saying, West Roxbury's numbers are very different than Dorchester's or East Boston's numbers. Um, and that's of great concern. So, so like I just said, Ms. Boos is actually showing us the problem. The data is not very specific, so our policy can't be very specific. But Kamani and Ms. Robinson are explaining that real life is very specific. And we don't need to have policies we can't have policies that don't consider real life and real people. And when it, especially when it's coming, when we come to trying to protect the communities and, the, and educating our children. So this conversation ends with the administration saying effectively that people, families are going to make their own choices. And we've already pulled them and half of them are opting out of classroom, you know, in classroom school. And so there's your answer. But I right. think their point is, you know, we're, we're really looking to the district to have a point of view on this that acknowledges that in real life, some people don't have a choice. Right. So, so again, Jill, you know, people are looking for, for leadership and, and trust and guidance and they're um, potentially just receiving confusion. Um, so, so lo and behold, the MOU passed unanimously. Let's get right. to the punchline. So, um, so the MOU between the Boston teachers union and the Boston Public Schools is now passed um, and uh, will be implemented um, in some way. Um, one last vote was taken, Jill, uh, on a policy to ensure that a feeder pattern between community-based K-1 programs uh, could have a feeder into a K-2 classroom for in, in a BPS school. Um, this was unanimously passed without a whole bunch of, uh, not, not much conversation. Um, and it's it's a really good step in the right direction to expand access to community-based programs who are have K-1s um, and provide a clear direction for families into K-2. Um, so then the meeting uh, ended with a really peculiar <laughs> request here. Um, so there's an opportunity at the end of the meeting for new business. And um, Dean Coleman um, put a motion forward to have a discussion about limiting public comments because it seems to be taking too long. Let's play that, um, that request from, from Dean Coleman. More than 90 minutes of public comment every night uh, makes it very difficult to focus on the other work. And I'm wondering if we could uh, consider a, a temporary suspension of the rules given this, this situation to limit the amount of time we spend on a public comment with expressly looking for ways that we get more emails, other communications that have to happen. Because this is just, um, I, I anticipate this being a regular event that we're here for seven, eight hours, uh, increasingly unproductive and it's very difficult. So I would love to be able to consider that. I know there are lots of rules and regulations, but I would like to put that on the table. Well, I appreciate you raising that, uh, Dr. Coleman, um, and I'm looking around and it, it seems like there might be uh, some interest uh, from other members in um, considering something along those lines. So, Is that even allowed? Can, can, can they cut off participation by the public? I thought it's a public meeting. <laughs> well, what's the problem we're trying to address here? Are we... Are we right. concerned that people are taking too much? The public has, has too much input, or have, has, they have too much question, too many questions? 
mean, um, there's two things going on here, right? There's there's complete lack of leadership in these meetings, right? So members go on and on, they opine, they bring in their own points of view. They're, they're there to ask questions and to vote, right? They're there to ask questions so they understand, they're there to listen to the public and they're there then to put all of that information together and represent all of their constituency with, with a vote. And then the other problem is the problem that you've been pointing out throughout this podcast, which is a complete lack of trust, which is bringing so, many, many people to the table. So Jill, we can expect that uh, public comments will last longer. Um, and that will be a good indicator for uh, how trusting the community is of the Boston Public Schools. Um, and as we saw from a seven hour meeting, the public does not trust the Boston Public Schools. So I would recommend that rather than having a motion to limit the voices of the public, um, of talking at a public meeting at a school committee, which is pretty much what happens in every town and city across America, um, that we instead work on trust and use it as a gauge and determine that maybe if people um, don't come out in such large numbers with such passion and such good questions, that then we are doing a good job of leading the school district because we have we've gained the trust of our community, of our parents, teachers and students. That's right. That's right. So last but not least. Just, uh, just when starting, we thought it was over, right? Just when we thought it was over. Yeah, we, we're starting school on Monday. A lot of unanswered questions. Um, but the last item on the agenda was, was, a, was a note um, that uh, Chairman Lacanto wanted to make sure that we got right, um, is that the superintendent's vacation days were um, incorrect in her contract. And so she was given 24 days in her contract um, and it should have been 30 days so that she could get the same vacation time as other members of her executive team. Um, so that was an interesting way to end a meeting when school starts on Monday and there's so many unanswered questions and we have 7,000 windows that need repaired. But I'm glad the committee is paying attention to how many days the superintendent needs to take for vacation. Right. So school will start remotely on Monday. With so much unfinished business. Seems like the theme of the meeting, Jill, as BPS is saying, trust us, just trust us. Everything will be okay. And what we heard from the community was that we don't trust you. Let's hope on Monday, Jill, that our school leaders and teachers are able to figure this out school by school. Since we don't have any district-wide decisions and district-wide consensus, what we can do is depend our, our, on our individual schools to deliver for our kids. Yeah, thank God for that. Thank you for listening to last night at school committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.